here we have another in a long line of episodes that I just really don't have much to say about. So here's the episode. It exists! Alright. Not on that note. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It, I really do have very few notes here. But I do want to talk about a few concepts, if that's okay. Discussing uh, television, character stuff, a few other things. So, first of all, uh, what I find funny is, according to several interviews, they were trying to figure out who Cisco was as a character, what they wanted to do with him, where they, oh, excuse me, where they wanted him to go, development of the personalities, etc. Now, I find that interesting because, as I have pointed out, Cisco was pretty well defined in season one. Like, we had a pretty good starting point, and they even had a built-in character arc, which they even advanced in the beginning of Season 2. So, <laughs> like, I, I, or excuse me, the end of Season 1. I don't really fully understand why there was this sudden need to go on to Cisco, you know. Especially for what is, frankly, such a relatively absent plot. Now, don't mistake me, this episode isn't bad. I'd probably call this episode more boring than anything else. And I know, everyone's just going to say, well, it's just because you hate romance. Well, to be blunt, the romance is a big part of it. And I will discuss my reasons and show my work for that later. But originally, this was actually going to be a Bashir episode, which, in my opinion, just shows how flawed this whole premise really is. Because Bashir just had a romance of the week, Melora. It was not that long ago. Why would he suddenly have another romance of the week so quickly? I know Bashir likes to think he's Kirk. <laughs> I mean, I know I've spoken out against the very concept of the romance of the week many, many times. And I feel like romance of the week can be done properly if utilized very carefully and precisely. I could probably name two examples off the top of my head for that. One with Picard over in TNG and one with Janeway over in Voyager. But for the most part, it's just, oh, quick, we need, we need some romance in the episode. <sighs> okay, okay, whew. That bullet dodged. All right, back to real stuff. You know, that's how I feel it's usually approached. Um, now, I will admit the teaser's good in this episode. It's a really long teaser. It's like four minutes. I didn't actually write down the number. And it's, first of all, it establishes this is the uh, fourth anniversary of Wolf 359. Which is, not only gives us a nice coherent time for stamp for where we are, but more to the point, also means that he has now been without Jennifer for four years. And as he himself points out, he is a little bit disturbed at how it almost passed without incident. Now, that one line, in my opinion, does more to develop Benjamin Sisko than the entire rest of the episode. And I mean that with genuine sincerity. Because... There's something weirdly human in the simultaneous ability to adapt and the frustration about adapting. To explain this in the specific, human beings, I know this sounds like a weird thing to say, but human beings psychologically, mentally, emotionally are ridiculously adaptable. We may not like dealing with things. We may break under things. We may not come out the same way. But that's all because of the fact that we are, in fact, changing and altering the way we think and the way we feel to accommodate this new circumstance. Now, with regards to grief in particular, we can only grieve so long, for the most part. I have had several friends and family members die in my life, and I do not spend every single day mourning their loss. Every time I am reminded of them, I am still sad. But... If I was to rewind time back to when those wounds were fresh, to, to use a metaphor here, 
I was mourning them every single day. You get it? And then, of course, there's that other side of the human psyche which says, how dare you not be sad? How dare it be normal that you accept your wife's death, Cisco? Right? And so it's kind of the, he, the, the, the unpleasant feeling of having finally gotten accustomed to the idea of the passing of his wife. There's something wonderfully human in that, and something wonderfully indicative of him and his mentality and his purpose. And then we've got the rest of the episode. <clears throat> so, stuff happens, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's a mysterious woman, succubus, excuse me, who shows up, and the succubus is like, hi, and then she vanishes. Um, Richard Kiley is the gentleman who played Sciatech, and I think he did a phenomenal job of the role. I've talked about this type of character before, and every now and again, Star Trek in particular, has gotten this type of character right. It's someone who is egotistical, but not horrible. And it's a very distinct, very clear uh, type, spread, narrow line of character that needs to be uh, afforded. Because here's the thing. One of the things I've talked about many times is that there's a type of character who is unlikable, to the audience. Now, obviously, this is always going to be a morphic and dynamic thing. You can't just say he's got, you know, brown hair and therefore the audience will hate him. There's no rule book. But I've talked so much before about the difference between a character you dislike and a character you want off the screen, right? The distinction between those two concepts. It would be very easy for someone like Sciatech to be a character that you just you just want to get him off the screen. It's just, God, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to interact with you anymore. And so they wisely, both the director and the actor, managed to add some legitimate charm and personability to the man and show redeeming qualities to him so that his smarm and his ego are reined in by his more positive traits. Now, he may still hit that point of just get off my screen, and I would love to hear any of your guys' thoughts if any of you actually felt that way about him. For me, he only drifted into that territory very briefly a couple of times. And then it was basically leveled out by the character's, the actor's performance and, again, his other redeeming traits that he showcases later. So, very definite props to that. Now, here's the thing. You might wonder, why am I talking about Sciatic so much? This is a romance plot between Cisco and Fena. Um, and the thing is, I don't agree, really. I mean, I do agree, obviously, but I guess my point is... The romance between Cisco and Fena is so uninteresting, I have exactly one note about it in my notes. I'm sorry, that's actually a lie. Excuse me, I just noticed two notes. Because <laughs> one's about Jake and Cisco, but they're talking about Fena. Ergo, that qualifies. That's it. I have nothing to say about it. Except for my headcanon, which completely replaces this with my own headcanon, which I will share with you. Uh, I'll wait till later, because I know everyone, not everyone wants to hear that. So, they meet... Okay, cool. Um, then they have a second meeting. They go to the place which, uh, oh my god, I wanted to say Major Barrett. Uh, Loxana says, oh, this would make a wonderful uh, picnic spot. So they go up there, and it is a nice view. I will definitely give them that. And then she's like, no, I can't tell you anything about myself. I've, I've got to go. Well, and she vanishes. And he can't find hide nor hair of her. He actually asks Odo to try and find this woman because he's that uncertain. And yet, I, I, I've got to be the only person who's looking at this and thinking, isn't this a security risk? 
Isn't this some kind of concern that maybe, maybe someone should be looking into? There's some random woman no one has ever heard of who's just all of a sudden, and then she's gone every now and again. Like, <laughs> these people have watched Star Trek before, right? Uh, okay, so the, 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 the scene, I wanted to mention this. So Jake and Cisco's scene, it's good stuff. As ever, Cyric Lofton, and God, I hope that's the right name. That just popped into my brain. I, you know, you guys know how terrible I am with names. Uh, Cyric Lofton, I think, and um, Avery Brooks really do have some great dynamic chemistry together. There's a lot of genuine father-son feeling. I've commented on this before. This is a great another shade of that, another uh, angle or perspective on that same father-son relationship where the son offers the tacit, you know, uh, approval to the parent of the parent trying to get into a relationship again. Now, I might be a little bit biased because I've been that kid. My parents divorced when I was four. So, you know, I kind of know what that feels like and how the parent, as I know this, as they have talked to me about this as I've grown older, they cared about my opinion about people they were going out with because I was important to them. I mean, this, this whole dynamic makes sense. So again, huge props to the two actors for, for managing a very simple, human, partially awkward, but mostly heartfelt perspective on that. Good stuff. And again, good stuff for the characters. I also like how Odo, despite mocking, takes this very seriously. I love Odo. I really do. He's just like, all right, name. Alright, anything else? Detail, detail, okay, you've given me nothing to go off of, but I will look into this. And he does. And he's pretty much one of the core reasons why they are able to narrow down this mystery, because Odo is very good at his job, the constable, you know, so that's awesome. Um, quick side note, they don't actually mention this in the episode, they very briefly toss the words proto-matter into the episode, but that's it. But it has been confirmed by the writers and by the technical manual, or not the technical manual, excuse me, one of the ancillary works, that the device he was using to reignite the star is actually derivative uh, and, and is, a is, is technology built off of the Genesis device back in Star Trek II. And that was deliberate on behalf of the writers. They wanted to show that you know, the Federation was still considering that in more proper utilization. And for terraforming, I mean, that just makes perfect sense. Um, I also uh, want to mention a couple other things this episode does. So first of all, at the 20 minute and 38, 38 second mark, that's when it's like, revealed, oh my god, it's his wife. Um, and he also mentions to, I believe it's Dax, he says, this is the first time I've been drawn to someone in so long. I want to remind you that they've met twice. I was keeping track at this point in time. Then during their third meeting ever, they actually kiss, and then she vanishes in front of him. And that's when we start to treat this a little bit less of a romance plot. But I point that out because I know it's television, and I know that we only have so much time to devote to this, but I want you to picture someone who you have met twice, ever, who you don't know anything about them. This is really important. Doesn't know her species, doesn't know her personality, doesn't know her past, doesn't know her likes or wants or wishes or dreams or hopes or anything about this woman. You know what he knows about her? She's hot, and she likes him, or at least seems to like him. That's it. Earlier, uh, Jake says, are you in love? And Cisco says, what? huh? No, no, Cisco, you are not in love. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to just be the anvil on this situation, but that is the bare bones beginnings of infatuation at best, okay? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I know, two of, first, first glance, blah, blah, blah. 
it's not real love. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is my opinion. I should add that. This is my opinion. It's not real love until you actually know the person you're loving. <laughs> he doesn't know if it's her first name or last name. He doesn't know her species. Now, you could argue that that doesn't matter, but I'm just using it to emphasize that he knows nothing about this person. She might as well be a hologram. Oh, how funny! <laughs> now, this, uh, there's a couple other things they do that I do actually kind of like. Don't worry, I'm kind of building to a point here. Uh, but I wanted to mention this really quick because this is the first time ever in Star Trek history where they mention a variance in taste between replicated food and real food. Now, I want to say something really quick. I buy that replicated food tastes differently than normally cooked food because that makes perfect sense. I mean, of course it does. Rep normal food is going to have variables and flaws and changes and imperfections that's going to alter the taste. That makes perfect sense to me. However, I have always disagreed with the argument, and I've seen people argue this. In fact, my own viewers have argued this against me. I've always disagreed with the idea that replicated food tastes worse. Now, I can, I can get, state my evidence for that very, very quickly and very briefly. It's very simple. Um, there are plenty of people who will say that that a McDonald's hamburger that you buy from this McDonald's is better or worse than McDonald's hamburger you buy from there. Now, that may or may not be true, but that really just comes down to preference. Like, like you follow my line of direction here? I have no doubt believing that there are people who prefer, you know, crafted food rather than replicated food. I understand that. That makes perfect sense. But the idea that replicated food tastes bad or is universally worse, is something I can't quite swallow. So I just wanted to share that really quick, because this is the first time it comes up, and it like, should be a recurring theme throughout DS9. Moving on. Uh, there's a line where Sciatic says, Ah, oh, she loves me. Don't ask me why, but she does. I like that. It's probably our first real bit of humanization for Sciatic, and his indication of both self-awareness, and the fact that he does legitimately care about her that he does actually feel for this person. Now, I've heard people argue that he did his final act of suicide, let's just call it what it is, out of ego. I don't agree with that. I'm sure that was at least partially inspired. But let's be clear, he killed himself to free his wife from him because she came from a species that did not do divorce. And it was killing her, so he laid down his life for his wife. Now, I'm really emphasizing that point because the episode just kind of glances over it. Even the creators and writers and directors and producers of this episode flat out stated that this should have been a bigger deal than it was. This is, if I'm not mistaken, one of the first, if not the first, and please forgive me, I might be forgetting something, but this is one of the first very overt on-screen suicides in Star Trek. And it, it, I'm not going to lie here, it actually moved me. It was a significant moment. Let there be light. That was awesome. That was powerful. And he ignited a sun, reignited a sun, as his final terraforming achievement, and saved the life of his wife. I very much enjoy the multiple layers he shows. The actor, again, Richard Kiley, he can do the ha, 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 ha. But that's what I like to call the party face. That's the face you bring out for when you're a bunch of people and you're trying to entertain them. He manages to show frustration. He shows anger. He shows quiet defeat. He shows simple humility. He shows a lot of different traits. I really feel like this was more his episode than anyone else's. His and Fenna's. 
I find the science fiction element of this episode more interesting than the uh, romance of the week plot. The idea of a literal dream persona, which is basically an aspect of subconscious given real reality. This is something that's been explored in other works of both fantasy and science fiction. The idea that this is someone that, that uh, Nadell, I almost didn't remember her name because she's practically a non-character in this episode, isn't even conscious of our own subconscious. Like, you, you get the, the visual presentation there, and those of you listening to the MP3, you could probably imagine what I'm doing right now. It's the idea of someone, or I guess I should say a sliver, a part, a piece of you that you're barely even aware of, that you, you know exists to some extent or another, but don't really acknowledge. Nadell was cognizant of the fact that Fena existed, just not who she was or how she was or what she was. And to be as blunt as I can, given that Fena basically had no character trait other than succubus, I'm still building up to that, don't worry, I don't think it's hard to say that Fena really is just one tiny layer, literally a one-dimensional character, as in she was just one trait of Nadell's pulled out and given some semblance of form. There's a lot of interest in the idea of what if that persona had been allowed to continue without causing such strain to the host? Would droid effect take place here? Would she, through experience and inter interactions with others, be capable of growing to be more than a monodimensional character to actually have true sentience and sapience? Did she have true sentience and sapience? Or was she just a sliver? There's a lot to think about there, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. But let's talk about that succubus thing. And let me double-check my notes. Yeah, no, that is the final note I have. I really don't have much to say about this episode. Now, some of you probably assume I'm using that succubus terminology as a negative, and I don't mean it as such. It's just, you know, I play a lot of fantasy, and I play a lot of science fiction, and that's just kind of the first thing that came to mind. Perhaps something more, um, I suppose, less uh, negative a way to put this is she reminds me of an Asari. See... To me, what I'm seeing here is Benjamin Sisko falling head over heels for a woman he knows nothing about. And I'm sorry, I have more respect for Sisko than that. Unless she's a telepath who is basically doing the science fiction equivalent of a charm spell on him. Now that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? This is literally an energy projection of telepathic thought. Telekinetic thought, because she can physically interact too, right? It's not really that hard of a jump for me to show that, to go that one additional step and say that Fena is more or less literally a constant fixation spell, a projecting charm, if you will, and not even from malicious intent. I would argue there is no malicious intent here. I would argue there's no intent. It's just her nature for someone so secluded, so ignored so put upon by the, the kind of life she lived with her husband, what I am seeing is someone who naturally wants to be wanted, to be the center of attention, to have that which the core, the total pers persona, the total, uh, I guess, ego in this case, I, I'm not familiar with my terms. I know there's the id, the ego, and the superego. I forget which is which, but you know, th this whole concept d is lacking. Thus, she approaches Cisco. And she knows exactly what to say. Cisco said that, remember? You always know exactly what to say. In other words, uh, she's like the empath over in uh, The Empath. Remember that TNG episode? She naturally uses her abilities, without even really meaning to or wanting to, in order to acclimate herself to whomever she's looking at. Because that way, they will want her. 
And it is almost a, a tragedy to look at this and realize that what she wanted most was someone to love her and care about her. And the one who did so most literally died for her. I will leave you with those thoughts. I'm interested in seeing the comments section this week, but I will be seeing you guys next time.